0: Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going through this very intense book, a very uh, difficult book, a book that you have to think, a book that really gets to our hearts. Uh, It's a book where we're looking at a man, as we saw last week, who is the wisest man on earth, uh, the richest man perhaps on earth, the most powerful man on earth, uh, blessed by God in every, every possible way. And uh, we have to wonder, for those of us that know a little more about him, how in the world did this man drift from God the way he did in, in his middle years? Uh, we see him here at the end of his life in Ecclesiastes, apparently coming back to walk with the Lord. But what happened in the meanwhile? Why did this man drift from the things of God as, in the way that he did? And it seems to be that uh, as he looked at life, as he looked at the puzzles of life and the mystery, miseries of life and the miseries of life and so forth, it frustrated him. It frustrated him deeply that he looked at all the things we'll look at today and he saw no solutions. And he understood God. Last week we saw where he knew that God was the sovereign God, but at the same time he he wondered how can these things be if God is truly who he claimed to be. And so he lived his life uh, frustrated, always missing out on the satisfaction that he hoped he could find. A number of years ago, the seniors went on a trip to Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, we, uh, we were tra- traveling up to our hotel, trying to find her a hotel. And it was back in the days of the early GPS, when, when the first GPSs were coming out. And only one man in our group had a GPS, so we couldn't find her a hotel. So he ran it up on his GPS. We followed the uh, directions that was given on this thing. And we, and we came off the road and into a gravel parking lot, and all we had in front of us was a river. But as we were fuming about the fact that this GPS wasn't getting us there, we looked up and lo and behold, there was our hotel right in front of us, across the river. There was no way to get there from here, but it was there. The GPS tucked it to where it said it would take us, we just couldn't get there. And that's exactly the way Solomon is feeling. He sees it, he knows there's life up there somewhere, he knows there's something even connected with God, but he's missing it, he can't find it, he can't get there, he can see it, but he can't get there from here. He's frustrated, and that is the way Solomon is living, and I suggest that's the way the world lives today. As we go back to Ecclesiastes, I want to say something kind of in general about the wisdom literature of the Scriptures. Uh, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Solomon These are different than any other books of the Bible We love them because of the wisdom that they give us We love them because of the insights uh, But these are basically poetry uh, Most of you did, like poet, did not like poetry in school But poetry is a little different than prose Poetry not only instructs us, it, it invokes us Poetry is designed not only to teach But also to invoke emotion and the wisdom literature is li- is, has the same purpose. The, these scriptures, d- d- inspired by God, instruct us. They teach us about life. But they also evoke a, an emotion. Emotions. And as we go through this, notice the emotions that Solomon has. The same emotions that you and I often have as we face the frustrations of life. So let's delve in here. He, he, he identifies six frustrations that really was throwing him. He struggled with these things. Perhaps it is because of these things that he seemed to drift from God for a number of years. We start with injustice, chapter 3, verse 16. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, in a place of righteousness there is wickedness. Solomon is greatly distressed as he looks all around him and he sees injustice everywhere. The places where there should be righteousness and fairness, there's injustice. There's people uh, in, in every place he looks that are taking advantage of other people. The very places he saw that there should be righteousness, there was corruption. And he, asked, he could ask in his heart, I think, at this point, God, how can this be? If you're a God of righteousness, if you're a God of justice, then how is it that you're allowing your world to be permeated with all these unjust these things, these corrupt things? So many people in power taking advantage of other people in corruption. How can that be? And that's a very important question, by the way. Uh, some of the questions we're looking at this morning are questions the unbeliever asks a Christian. You know, if you say your God is the all-powerful, all-wise, all-sovereign God of the universe, then what is going on out there? It seems to us, though, they would say that it, the devil's the God, not your God. Something is seriously wrong, and Solomon is not playing with this. He is—he is actually looking deeply into this and trying to understand it. He comes up with a couple solutions at this point that is helpful. They're not definitive, but they're helpful. First of all, God will ultimately—verse 17. Bring every deed to justice. In verse 17, he says, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed. Basically, Solomon is saying what Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians, you will not mock God. Ultimately, you will pay what what you have sowed. If you've sowed, you will reap. God will not be mocked. And so he knows that eventually God is going to bring all people and all things to account. Nothing is going to totally get, get by with, with injustice and unfairness. God will bring them to account in his time, in his timing. But here's the second thing. He, said, he is saying that injustice tests us. Now look at verse 18. He says this, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Injustice, unfairness of life, tests us. How so? I think there's two different ways that Solomon might have in mind. First of all, it tests our own hearts and souls. When you're treated unfairly, when someone with more power than you, uh, uh, some in some way, treats you unfairly, or steps on you, or hurts you, it it at that moment, you are your soul, your values, your heart is being tested. How do you react to the injustices of life perpetrated on yourself? How do you react, and I get this consistently, when you open the mailbox on Saturday and you have an a, a envelope in there addressed from the IRS? Every time I get a letter from the government, it's always on Saturday. So that I can have a bad weekend and I cannot talk to anybody about anything. So how do, you, how do you react? How do I react when I get some, a notice of that kind? But injustices, and that isn't always unjust, sometimes it is, but injustices reveal our hearts. But I think he has something else in mind here as well. He moves on to the end of the verse. He says, "God Surely God tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. I think Solomon looks around and he sees all these people in power who are taking advantage of other people And he says, how can there be so many people on this planet who are taking advantage of others? And everywhere he looks, he sees that they're acting, he says, like beasts. Like animals with no conscience. With no concern for others. They're acting like beasts. Secondly, he goes to a second frustration. The impartiality of death. One of his favorite subjects in this book is death. Death. And here he's talking about the fact that all people die. Look at, look at verse 19. He says this. For the fate of the sons of men are the, are the, is the fate of beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. and they, There's no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All come for the dust and all return to the dust. From a biological standpoint. Remember he's talking about observation under the sun. This is how people live under the sun, as if there's no God, as if there's no connection to God. And he says, if that's the case, then there is no difference between me and a beast. No difference between me and an animal. We die, they die. Even a king, I think that's what he's concerned about, even he is not exempt. He may be the wisest, richest, most powerful man on the earth, but he too is going to die. And by the time he writes this book, he's probably an older man and he's looking closer at death, and he realizes he's not going to be exempt, he is going to die, and that frustrates him, that bothers him, he is going to go back to dust, just like an animal goes back to dust, and if you don't believe that there is a God, that's all you have left, right, Uh, when I was about 14 years old, my beloved dog got hit by a car and died, This dog was probably my best friend. We roamed the hills together and chop BB guns. He didn't shoot, I did. And and, and we, just my bestest buddy in the world, really. I still remember to this day, when I came home from school, my mother was at the front door and she said, uh, I could tell there was something desperately wrong. And she was trying to prepare me for what was the fact that my dog had died. And so I remember running across the street where a neighbor had taken my dog and put the dog behind their house. And I got the dog and I carried the dog back to um, our backyard and I dug a hole, uh, a grave for the dog. I wouldn't let anybody help me. I, I dug it myself, crying the whole time, put my dog in a, in a cloth and buried the dog in the ground. We had the family wrapped around the dog as we had a funeral. It was my first funeral service. <laughs> now, I'd had some other memorial services. I had buried parakeets and gerbils and, and but this was a true full-blown funeral. I read scripture, I prayed, I pleaded with God. And here was my plea to every every young person in this room has lost a pet. And half of you adults have prayed this prayer. Lord, if there's any possibility to resurrect my animal and bring that animal to heaven with me, please God do that. Now I was enough of a theologian at 14 to know that probably wasn't going to happen. Nothing in scripture says my dog is going to resurrect from the dead. But I hoped for it, I prayed for it. There's times I still would like to see that happen, but God has not said that's going to happen. And so when I buried my dog that day, I knew that would be the last time I would see that dog in this, in this world ever because animals turn back to dust. We know that, right? We believe that even if we don't like that. But what about people? Are we any different than beasts? Do, do we just simply die Get put in a grave and, and, and eventually turn to dust. It almost makes me laugh to some degree. I, I guess I shouldn't, but I'd have done hundreds of funerals. And it's amazing how sophisticated the vaults and the caskets have become over the years. That, that people can, can kind of live uh, with the same perpetual body for 200 years now in these, in these crypts and caskets and so forth. Why? You trying to cheat dust? You know, you think somehow you're going to win here? No, you're. You're. If you have no God, you're a beast, and ultimately, no matter what you put into your funeral service, you are going to die. The impartiality of death. We don't like that because we're superior beings, right? In the Jungle Book by Kipling, he talks about the the ferocious tiger, the mean tiger, that was afraid of the little boy Mowgli because he was intelligent. And he knew that ultimately the boy would beat him at at life because of the intelligence of the little boy. There is no animal we haven't killed or caged or tamed. We are the superior beasts of the planet. But if death is all there is, if death is the end, we are but beasts in the long run. And that's humbling and that's hard for us to accept. Verse 21, it's hard to accept that one of my favorite commentators on this book uh, tried to retranslate verse 21. It says, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downwards to the earth? And this one commentator tried to say, well, what he's saying is that, that there's not many who know that the spirit of man ascends and the spirit of beasts do not. It just simply goes down. That Not everybody knows that. That's not what he is saying. He's not putting a positive spin on this. He is saying in uh, those under the sun, those who are living for this world, those who live without a, a connection with God, they are having no hope, no better hope than a beast when we die. And that's what he says in verse 22. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities for this is his lot or who will bring him to see what will occur after him? He is saying, look, if this is it, then do the best you can. Enjoy life as much as you can because this is it. And when you die, you simply go to the ground like, like a beast. That's frustrating. If this is it, that ought to frustrate you. Yuck, right? There's a third, uh, inju- a third frustration. That's oppression, verse 1 of chapter 4. Then I looked again at the, at the acts of oppression which are being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And this, on the side of the oppression was power, but they had no one to comfort them. He looks around and he sees, everywhere he sees, he, he sees oppression. He sees little people being pressed down by more powerful people around the globe. And that hasn't changed much, has it? You can go out here to our missionary corridor off to my right and you can go out in, our, in that area and we have a very large map of the world. You can shut your eyes and, and put your finger on almost any place on that map and you would you could say with almost certainty there is massive oppression there. Half of the world is under oppression of one kind or the other. And even in, in North America there's oppression of the powerful that push down the small person. And, and Solomon is very much disturbed by that. A, a, a writer one time wrote these words uh, concerning an editorial. He, this guy was a sociologist. And he said that the poverty and the squalor of, of the slums and the constant threat of global war often made him weep. He said he wished that the, the good and omnipotent God described by the Christians really did exist. The writer declared that if he had the power the Bible ascribes to the Lord, he would quickly cure all crippling diseases and make right the justice, injustices of society and put an end to all human violence. Well, that's what people think. Where, where's God? Why, why, are, why is all this happening? Why, is there, why are there so many people that are miserable on this planet, really? We, we are pretty privileged people compared to most of the world, but why are there so many, many billions of people in misery on this planet? It bothers him to a great degree. So much so that he kind of is despairing of life by verse 2, so I congratulated the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still living, but better off than both of them is one who's never existed, who's never seen the evil activity that's done under the sun. Wow! It's better not to have ever lived than to live on this planet and see all the oppression that is there. That's, that's his heart's. That's his struggle. He is depressed. He is discouraged he is frustrated the fourth one is achievement that is brought about by jealousy and competition in verse four he says this is as I've seen that labor and every skill which is done and is a result of rivalry between man and his neighbor this too is vanity and striving after wind he looks out and he sees achievement he sees people accomplishing things But he recognizes that in almost every circumstance, the achievements are being accomplished because people want to be better than one another. They want to outdo one another. It's because of competition. It's because of jealousy. And if you're honest about that, folks, just look around our world. In almost every endeavor, that's true. Whether it's the business world, the political world, the the athletic world, it's all about who's best. And he says, sure, there's achievement. There's things being accomplished. But what's the motive behind these things? Why do people do these things? Because they're trying to look better than the other person and be better than the other person. But that's short lived because there's always someone better than you. And, some, and one day you'll see that. In verse 5, he says, there's the other opposite, opposite of that. The fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. So there's some say, well, I can't get ahead, I can't compete. And therefore, I think I'll just sit at home, eat potato chips and Oreos, watch television, and let somebody else take care of me. He has a word for that guy. He's a fool. Remember he wrote Proverbs and he, and he recommends hard work, achievements, uh, planning ahead, even investing. He says those that sit back and do nothing are fools. So what does he say we should do? Verse six, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving. If we're living this life under the sun, then with one hand, go for it, achieve, accomplish. With the other hand, remember, rest, enjoyment. He calls for balance. But still, that frustrates him. That's not enough for him at this time. Then we move on to a, a fifth frustration. That's loneliness. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. And I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, that there's no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes are not satisfied with riches, and he never asks, For whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This to his vanity and a grievous task, loneliness. You know, one of the saddest things observable is to see people that have no one who loves them, and no one who cares for them, who live totally isolated, who, who simply are an entity in themselves, and nobody else really cares. I've done a few funerals like that for people that uh, I was asked to come and do a funeral because nobody uh, they knew them. There was no one there. I did funerals for somebody. I I once did a funeral for a child, and there was only the mother and maybe two other people there. She had no network. No one cared. No one loved her. That's tragic, isn't it? And he looks around him and he sees these lonely people who sometimes have caused themselves to be lonely and isolated because of their pursuits of life. They're so focused on getting ahead and succeeding in one thing or the other they never bothered to think why am I doing this? Who am I leaving this stuff for? What is my legacy with those behind me? Loneliness. Some sociologists and observers of the human life today had said, we are in an epidemic of loneliness in our crowded world with billions of people. When the cities that are just so crowded we can hardly move, our suburbs with houses lined up side by side, that the people are more lonely today than they ever have been, especially in the West. And the sociologists are saying this, that the less involved that we are with person-to-person relationships, the more involved we are with social media. What a, what a head fake social media is. Uh, Facebook comes out and says, here's your friends. Baloney. Those are not friends. The, the friends have been redefined. People are, 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 think, are going to social media for, for comfort and, and uh, companionship and they're being left behind because nobody really cares. Uh, England even has, I understand, a minister of loneliness trying to figure out how to help lonely people. Companionship is gone. People have forgotten what that's all about. And, and as he looks at that, he sees these lonely people. He does at this point gives us several benefits of companionship. He wants to encourage us to not be isolated. The verse eight I just read is that it serves, it gives purpose for our labor and efforts. We have something, we have someone to share our life with. Have you ever watched a TV show? I mean, Marsha and I watch these shows that are comic, com- comical shows a lot of times. And I'm sitting, and she's not with me. She went out to something else. And I'm all by myself, and I watch this show. And here are jokes, funny things, and I laugh at them. And I think, huh, I'm all alone laughing at this stuff. This is weird. I'd like to share that with Marsha, but it'll never come out the same. It, I have no one to share it with. That's loneliness. He says it gives purpose for your labors. You have someone to share life with. Verse 9 says uh, it's more profitable. Verse 9 says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. You can get more accomplished with two than one. Verse 3 provides strength and encouragement when we need it. Verse 10, uh, that's number 3, verse 10. For for if either of them falls, the the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. During the hard times, when we truly recognize our need for caring communities and someone who loves us, it's during those difficult times when we need someone there to help us, sustain us, to pick us up. It provides warmth and comfort. Verse 11: "Furthermore, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one be a warm alone?" And then finally, it gets protection. Verse 12: "And if one is overpowered, if." One can overpower him who is alone. Two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. It provides protection. God said for the very first time that something wasn't good. Remember that? In Genesis? It's not good for what? Man to be alone. God has provided a number of networks, a number of nettings, to provide for us loving companionship. There's marriage, there's families, there's friends, and there's the church. Those are the big four in my opinion. God has given us for companionship, for people to share our lives with us and to go through life together with us. These are gifts that God gives us. He has one more frustration he wants to get. Are your emotions getting there yet? He said, this is the most uplifting sermon I've ever heard. I can I hardly wait to get out of here. You know, wow, this had the great baptism service and nice songs, and, and now you're doing this to us. Well, hang on, not quite done yet, but we've got one more frustration. It's a frustration concerning success. It's only temporary. Look at verse 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction, for he's come out of prison to become king, even though he was poor, born poor in his kingdom. I've seen all the living under the sun thronged to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people and to all who were before them. And even the ones who come later will not be happy with him. For this to his vanity and striving after wind. Now this is a little bit convoluted and a little difficult to read. To understand, let me unravel it for you. He's saying this, I have seen a person rise to the top. And and they stayed on the top for a while. Then somebody came along and replaced them and knocked them off the top. And they now are on the top. And then somebody comes and replaces them. And he sees that as life. We don't, we climb the ladder of success. That's that's the goal of, of most Americans. Climb that ladder. Do whatever you have to do to be successful. Whatever that means to you. And when you get there, you realize there's very little joy in success. It's not what you thought it would be. It doesn't bring the happiness and the satisfaction. Often it brings much more misery. And if you do climb to the top, and you get way up there, and you are the young buck coming up, knocking off everybody else, the day comes when you're no longer that person. And somebody else is vying for your position, and they will get it in due time. As he looks at all that, he says, wow, wow, this is frustrating. I don't get it. I I don't see the purpose. I don't understand it. Even success is temporary. Verse 13 seems to be his commentary on this. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. So that's his commentary. Maybe it's better just to be a, a, just a wise yet lad rather than a foolish king. And so he's frustrated. His world is filled with mysteries, inconsistencies, injustices, suffering, oppressions, It's easy to live in such a world frustrated and in despair. And that's kind of where he's leading us so far, isn't it? But there are some things along the way that he's recommending, that he's pointing to, that are truly important. uh, Chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, people are important. People are far more important than all the many things you often chase after. And that companionship, that sharing of life with others in those four categories I gave you are gifts of God. He also points out the enjoyment of the gifts of God that he does give us. In verse 22 of chapter 3, I've seen that there's nothing better than that a man should be happy in his activities, to enjoy his life. God gives us opportunities to enjoy life. That is a gift of God. We'll flesh it out far more as we move forward. However, primarily, he's leading us somewhere else. And here's the big picture, folks. These frustrations are at the hand of God. These are designed by God for a purpose. They drive us to something. They're they're never intended to drive us to despair. They're intended to drive us to what chapter 5 verse 7 calls the fear of God. We touched on that last week. The the first part of chapter 5 really is part of the sermon that I'm looking at today, but we don't have time. It said, for many dreams and many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. Fearing God, as I said last week, is not that cringing running from God. It's that delight in God in which we're drawing near to Him, in which we love Him, in which we see the awesomeness and the greatness and the power and the majesty of God when we step back and say, Wow, what a God! That's the fear of God. That's where, he, where He's taking us here. Only proper fear drives out the fears of all of the concerns and frustrations. Are you fearful? Are you frustrated? Are you anxious? The the ultimate solution is not a whole bunch of of this, that, and other psychobabble. The ultimate solution is fear God. The fear of God drives out the fear of all other things. Spurgeon said, it is not because we're afraid of Him, but because we delight in Him that we fear Him. That's well said. Frustrations, folks, tell us that we do not have the ultimate solutions to life in this life. But... Christ does, and here's his point. He is not making that point here. His, is he, he summarizes it in fear of God. But let's transport our thinking for one second to the New Testament, when Jesus was dealing with very frustrated, very fearful disciples. In John chapter fourteen, you can look it up later, the verses one to six. When Jesus was dealing with these frustrated, fearful disciples, and was telling them he was going to go away. And he was going to die for them. And they wanted to know how, could, how they could get to him. Remember what Jesus said in verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes through the Father but through me. Solomon is pointing that direction without saying that. So we have our bridge. Let's go back to my opening illustration. We have the frustrations of life have taken us to the river that we can't cross. We can see up ahead the things that we think would bring us joy and happiness, satisfaction, but we can't get there. There's water, a big river between us and there. What do we need to cross the river? We need a bridge. And who is that bridge? Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus builds the bridge between this life and God, between us and God. We only cross over to the Father. Through Him, Frustrations, believe it or not, are God's gifts. They drive us to the place that we realize the, no matter how good life is here, no matter what I see and can accomplish, this is not it. It doesn't bring me the life I was hoping it would bring. It doesn't bring me what I want to live for. It brings me to the place where we're outside on that river bank and we're looking ahead and we see Jesus Christ and all of His glory. And we say, how do I get there? Across the bridge that he's built. Well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I think that's where Solomon's going. I think that's why God has put this book in the Bible. That we might see Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. As we sang just a moment ago. If, you've, if you're frustrated about these things. Then, and you don't know Christ. You've not crossed that bridge. Talk to us today. Let us show you how you can come to Jesus Christ by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this book of Scripture that at first leaves us very frustrated, but ultimately points us to the right solution, which is found in the fear of yourself and in the solution that Christ provided on the cross. Father, I I thank you for this morning. We're so grateful for the ones that followed you in baptism. We're so grateful for so many here that know you now. I do pray, Lord, for those that might not know You, who are who are muddling around with whatever else they think might ultimately lead them to life, and they're going to come to the end of ultimately realize that it never succeeded; they never came to life, they never came to salvation, never never came to satisfaction, and all that is found in You as a gift. And Lord, if those here today do not some that do not know that, may they come to You even now as we close out our service in Jesus' name. Amen.